Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Gen Z. Gen Z is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. All right, everyone, welcome to today's episode of Gen C. In addition to Avery and myself, we have a special guest host sitting in with us, Rosie Perper. She is the Web3 Deputy Managing Editor at Coindesk, and she is going to kind of sit in and talk about all the big stories that are happening right now, including some of the ones that she specifically has written about. In addition, we're going to learn a little bit more about Rosie's journey here because Rosie comes from the traditional sort of style and business industries and being an amazing journalist and writer in that. So I'm personally pretty curious on what made her come into the generative world of crypto. So first off, Avery, how are you doing? I'm great. Super excited that we have Rosie on today. I've gotten to know Rosie a little bit over the past year or so, and I think her insights are always spot on. So excited to have another journalist with us. How are you doing, Sam? I am fantastic. I'm a little tired. Didn't get that much sleep last night. But I just think, you know, insomnia's in the air. There's too much stuff to do. And crypto never sleeps, Avery. So, Rosie. First of all, Rosie, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So good to have you. Where are you calling in from right now? I am calling in from Hawaii, not to brag. It's a beautiful sunny day and a beautiful day to talk about everything that's going on in Web3. Amazing. Let's get into that for a second. So one of the things that hit sort of my attention over the last couple of days is this concept that Coinbase just came out with, Bitsky came out with recently as well, kind of the idea of wallet as a service. And so Avery and I talk a lot about how we're going to get you know, the tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of people into the crypto ecosystem. And it feels like sort of decoupling complicated wallet infrastructures and applications from the experiences themselves and kind of baking them in, whether it's via the app layer or something easier, is the way to get more people in. So Coinbase just announced that they are offering this wallet as a service. And we actually know some people who are testing this out in a couple of different interesting ways. I would love to, one, start with Avery. I know you guys, you know, have always thought a lot about Ed Vayner, kind of how you incorporate the wallet into the experience, the troubles of people having their own wallets, as well as the opportunities of self-sovereign ownership of assets. What are your thoughts of wallet as a service? 
I am really excited for wallet as a service. I think it's something that a lot of brands and enterprises have been looking for and asking for. So Coinbase, Bitsky, many others building in this space to abstract away a lot of the complexity that comes along for normal users who have to get set up with a decentralized wallet. That is clearly a barrier and it's been known to be a barrier sort of since this whole NFT boom started. Like there's a lot of steps for a normal person to go to actually get an NFT and then even when they get it, it's like, how do I show it off? So I think this is something that enterprises have been asking for. It's like, how do we make this a seamless user experience? And how do we build something that looks native to our brand or to our team or to our program or project, but allows alignment towards the principles of decentralization? So I think both of these two companies we just mentioned have built something that's really impressive. I got a demo of Bitsky's recently, and we at Vayner work really closely with Coinbase on a bunch of stuff. So fired up about the wallet as a service revolution. And I think it will make it much easier for enterprises to participate in this world in a way that feels on brand for them and in a way that feels welcoming to their communities outside of Web3. So I'm excited about it. I guess my caution would be, I think we're going to see a lot of these wallet as a service companies pop up in a lot of the existing platforms in Web3 that we know and love make these wallet as a service tools. I don't think brands are as ready to activate as some of the Web3 sort of native audience thinks. Just because there's business realities, right? Like it's March of 2023. There's a lot of economic uncertainty. CMOs are under a lot of pressure in multiple directions. Launching something that requires, you know, this potentially always on commitment, new tech stack, integrating this new thing. It's not a turnkey solution. It's something that you have to have investment in, in terms of money, in terms of time terms of resourcing and staffing, whether that's internally or through an agency partner. So I think there will be a lot of these that come out, but brands I don't think are going to be able to adopt this at the drop of a hat. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and Web3 startups, teams, and builders. Apply to Coindesk PitchFest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest. Rosie, as someone who covers the space, I'm wondering, one, your thoughts of the idea of sort of wallets as this external thing that you kind of own and you get to decide what you want to do with compared to say what a Nike, a Reddit, a Starbucks are doing where a kind of wallet is already just incorporated into the app itself. Each of them come with benefits and some detriments. And I would love to just understand your thought process on how you look at the wallet ecosystem right now. You think mass consumers are ready to deal with the metamasks of the world, right? And like what it means to own the wallet. Yeah, so I think that A major point of friction is onboarding users and creating a wallet is obviously something that is native to Web3, but is not necessarily an easy process for people that aren't familiar. So I think, you know, finding ways that are alternatives to existing mask solutions. MetaMask is really great for people that are already familiar with the space, that already have existing wallets, that use the tool for numerous different web applications. But I think creating a, you know, unique wallet solution is maybe easier for the masses can be very helpful in a lot of ways. The thing I keep coming back to is whether or not people want to deal with the complexity of a regular crypto wallet. My first 
wallet was on paper, right? When it was Bitcoin. I then got a ledger in 2015, which, you know, in itself had a lot of fun because I sort of like diving into that complexity, but also I couldn't imagine my father using it. And so I guess I wonder when we think about the long-term opportunity that people are going to be comfortable still with keeping seed phrases and managing kind of the complexity of true wallet technology. That feels like one of the biggest barriers to mass. I think it's a huge barrier. I don't think that it's realistic that normal people are going to write down their seed phrase on a piece of paper and store it in multiple secure locations. Even me, I'm someone who's super into this stuff. Like It's intimidating. It's confusing. There's a lot that goes into it. There's also a lot of anxiety with self-custody. The same people who you see is really advocating for self-custody on Twitter. The moment they click on a bad link, they're asking for help from their friends and government officials to help them get back what they lost. So I think it's like self-custody is a double-edged sword. And I think it's a very challenging thing for a lot of people outside of those who are really, really into this and have really spent the time to know it. So I love Wallet as a service, as an easy way for companies and enterprises and entertainers and talent and IP owners to tap into the principles of decentralization, like the multi-party custody that Coinbase has, I think is really smart because it's true to ethos of decentralization. And it's also true to the user experience that people know and want and expect when they're using the internet today. Yeah. Not to get too technical, but the new ERC-4337 is also about trying to... Not too technical. Rolls off the tongue. tongue, But um, it is meant to sort of create some safety net should someone lose their seed phrase on a wallet or something like that. So I do think that we're getting there, but it's still a long road. And I think that road is one of the biggest hurdles. All right, let's move on. Rosie, you have two recent articles that you've written on the gaming industry. So one of them is this esports giant, TSM, who kind of created this partnership with Avalanche to create, I believe it's like a marketplace within their gaming platform. And then you also yesterday wrote on, I guess, what they're calling the second trip on the other side with Yuga Labs. I would love to, one, just get your thoughts on like, where are we at? Like, are we still in the batter's box? Or are we actually like at least up to bat when it comes to Web3 gaming? And two, sort of, What are the trends you're starting to see that are interesting you as a reporter of the kind of things you want to cover in gaming? I think Web3 gaming is so interesting, blockchain gaming in general. I think when, you know, play to earn gaming's really started to gain popularity, maybe last year, Axie Infinity was a huge driver of that. People in the Web3 world were really excited because this is obviously a new type of economy for gamers. There's new ways to incentivize gamers to keep coming back. So the Web3 community really embraced play to earn gaming, whereas the traditional gaming world has been really skeptical of Web3 in general, but also blockchain based gaming. I think a lot of gamers are like, if it's good, you know, don't fix it if it's not broken. So there's a lot of tension between, you know, the traditional gaming world and the Web3 gaming world. We've seen a lot of money in recent months being poured into the Web3 gaming space. So I think that there's a lot of investor interest in kind of building this out. We've seen a lot of former executives of traditional gaming companies make their way into Web3 in recent months. So there's definitely an institutional and maybe a, you know, executive level interest in Web3 gaming. But does that translate to, you know, the gamers that are actually playing these games? This is to be determined, right? So I think that's the main point that the Web3 gaming community is trying to fix is how do we get those traditional gamers interested in these Web3 games? We're obviously interested, but are gamers interested? So I think TSM is a huge esports league. 
They're now coming together with Avalanche to build out their competitive gaming platform called Blitz. And I think that that's a huge step for not only making the onboarding process easier, but also sort of legitimizing Web3 for the general esports community. But yeah, so I think that the New Deal is a great way to show the legitimacy of Web3 to bring in an existing very large audience of very passionate gamers. And also this partnership with Avalanche, I think, is also indicative of the creative aspects that can go into building out a gaming platform. So they're building out a subnet. So it's really this unique solution for TSM that I think their audience specifically will get a lot of use out of. And then I think from the Ulabs perspective, too, they recently onboarded a new CEO, Daniel Allegre. He comes from the traditional gaming world from Activision Blizzard. So I think they're obviously leaning very heavily into Web3 Gaming. Their other side platform is their version of an interoperable gamified metaverse emphasis on the gamified part. So they recently announced their second trip. So their first trip took place last July. The second trip is going to allow another 10,000 of what they're calling Voyagers or NFT token holders for their other deed NFTs to participate in another sort of large scale test of this other side metaverse. It's really narrative driven. So there'll be, I'm sure, gamified elements where people can gain points or gain other aspects for this other side metaverse. But, you know, I think it's showing that, you know, Web3 gaming has many facets. It looks very different across the space. Companies are doing it differently. And it's cool to see how both the traditional gaming space, traditional gamers, and the Web3 gaming space, how they're sort of approaching this tension that exists. I want to get your thoughts on, I'm not a gamer. I play some casual games. I've occasionally lost a night or two to a kind of longer game, but I'm not a gamer. But I do know that building out a game that people will come back to time and time again, where they really want to get involved, like a Red Dead Redemption, you know, a Call of Duty, a Fortnite, it takes years and huge amounts of money. And do you have a sense that sort of, you know, is Yuga kind of iteratively building on top to the idea where at some point we have that? Or, you know, as we saw with the Dookie Dash game they had, like, is it a little bit more casual? Like, let's go in really hard for a couple of weeks, create some contests, and then like, we'll come back to you. Like, what's your sense of how they look at being a game studio? So I spoke to the co-founders of Yuga Labs in December at Art Basel in Miami, and they both sort of viewed Other Side as the intersection of all of their different NFT brands that are under their umbrella. So I really do think that in their minds, Other Side is this sort of centerpiece for their entire strategy. So I think, you know, Dookie Dash was a fun trial of, you know, engagement of their community and introducing some new fun elements. But I really think that Other Side is its own sort of beast in the way that they're building it out. I really think that they're looking at things that have been done already, existing metaverse platforms, looking at the pros and cons of those platforms, and then adding elements from their own favorite games. They told me that World of Warcraft was a game that they were very heavily inspired by. So, you know, I think that ultimately, when it comes to Web3 Gaming, we'll see a lot of the familiar elements from traditional games that are being imparted into these Web3 games. But I think the idea is to do it in a very fresh way. So, yeah. So, Rosie, it sounds like from what you're saying in your conversations, and I feel like there's very few people who are as close to this as you are in our space, but that they're taking a little bit more of an approach that really is just building on top and building on top. I mean, they have an amazing team, right? It's not just, it's the other side team, but it's also Animoca and it's sort of all these very, you know, seasoned game professionals 
who are doing the work. Avery, are you seeing on the client side, I mean, you work with an amazing array of clients. My guess is a lot of them are, you know, working in the gaming space in some respects, whether you're a Budweiser or Pepsi, or maybe an auto brand. Are you seeing like, is there yet, in your opinion, an interest in sort of what is happening in the Web3 gaming space? There is a huge interest in what's happening in the gaming space. And like there are whole agencies dedicated just to gaming. Like gaming is not a subculture. Gaming is a culture and gaming is everywhere. You even see it on places like Super Bowl commercials. Like this is a very mainstream thing that's all across the globe. That's all across demographics. It's not just, you know, dudes in their basements, but it's something that over the last decade plus has really become a huge passion point. Web3 gaming is still so emerging and small in comparison to what you see through like an Epic Games with Fortnite or even a Roblox that it hasn't yet been like a huge area of focus. But, you know, I've shared this with you many times, Sam. I think actually there's more alike than people realize when it comes to gamers and people who are really into the crypto scene or into the NFT scene. It's this sort of broad strokes digital first reality where people are prioritizing their digital selves. They're building relationships digitally. They have digital currencies, whether those are in-game currencies or their crypto. When you survey people and you do consumer research, you understand that people actually do feel like they own their skins. They do feel like they have friends in their digital games or digital experiences. And I think this sort of user experience is actually pretty similar. And the motivations for participating in these things are pretty similar, whether you're talking about sort of the big picture gaming stuff or within the Web3 ecosystem. I think the Web3 gaming ecosystem, and I'll shout out Bryson, who's done a lot of work in this, there is a community and a culture around it. There are specific organizations who are really dialed into this. Obviously, Yuka has done an incredible job bringing their community into caring about this, whether it's in Other Side or Dookie Dash or whatever else they're going to come up with next. Is this sort of an entertainment vehicle? We also see organizations like Immutable X really focusing on Web3 gaming being a tremendous use case and gaming potentially being that gateway drug or killer app to bring more people into the world of Web3 broadly. When you sort of combine what crypto is, right? And a lot of crypto is kind of like doing the work, getting the alpha, being in early, trying to find those moments, you know, grinding, 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 and then maybe you have a win. And even, you know, Rosie, you reported that it was like two weeks ago that the person who won the Dookie Dash, the highest score, that the key they got sold for $1.6 million. You know, that's probably something that's not a normal like Web 2 or console game like paradigm. Like that is a very crypto thing that happened. Not that traditional gamers aren't making a ton of money. A lot of them are. But I think that there is that sort of gambling go for the gold mindset that we see in crypto. Rosie, any last words on like what you think? that those two synergies come together? Or is it still kind of a very divergent mindset in terms of the gaming side? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with Avery that a lot of the same motivations exist for traditional gamers and for people that are in the Web3 space or that are interested in crypto, making owning your in-game assets. I think these are very important things to both traditional gamers and Web3 gamers. But I would say that while we're still early in the space, I do think that seeing a lot of the developers and executives from, you know, AAA gaming studios coming over into Web3, the quality of the games are going to increase exponentially. And I think we're already starting to see that. Immutable X has done a really great job of linking up with a lot of those, you know, traditional gaming voices. So I think while we're still relatively early, I think we're at the sort of turning point of Web3 gaming becoming a lot more fun to play. 
Yeah, we mentioned this last week that I think that's exactly the sentiment, right? Is like we're at that beginning moment combined with, you know, the sort of MetaMask SDK that's now going to connect into all these systems on Unity and the ability to sort of start seeing how by owning something, it could unlock new opportunities in games, but from the like game engine level, a thing that needed to happen, which just was announced and we'll see where we get. I mean, in a related story, we saw this week that Animoca also is involved in with Yuga, but also a big game studio on their own and builds a lot of Web3 properties. They have partnered with Planet Hollywood for a tokenized membership club, which is going to be in LA. They say it's the first of many. Avery, I know you know something about tokenized membership clubs. I believe Gary in the Vayner side is a partner in Flyfish here in New York, I believe. But just would love to sort of understand your perspective, Avery, on the idea of tokenized social clubs and membership. Yeah, I think Flyfish Club really pioneered this idea of a tokenized social club and a tokenized membership that you can not only be proud to be a part of and actually go physically visit coming soon, New York 2023, but you could also trade. So say you were a member of Flyfish Club for three months, six months, a year, two years, three years, you could trade at any point. And I think that is a really interesting dimension. We've seen many people follow along sort of with that, with this idea of a tokenized membership club or a tokenized membership model. And beyond the obvious initial benefits of fundraising, I think it offers this liquidity that, you know, for members clubs traditionally, like you don't have, it's not possible once you buy it. It's not like I can sell my Soho House membership to Rosie, even if I only use it twice a year because it's so crowded. So I think it's a really interesting thing to consider. And I know a lot of the membership clubs who are very well-known and renowned have actually also been looking into this. So keen to hear your thoughts, Sam, on what Planet Hollywood's doing and how their program is set to roll out. I think the question I have about this is the only Planet Hollywood I've ever been to was the one in Las Vegas. And it felt like, you know, it's a little bit of a theme park for cinema, right? It's the kind of thing where, you know, you go, as opposed to Soho House is very well curated. It's creating a vibe. A lot of people go there to work day in, day out. My wonder is $2,500 to $7,000 right now is the spec for the Planet Hollywood one. And they're building a new club called Club 3 in LA. And I'm just interested to see whether that audience from that brand actually is willing to shell out those dollars in order to spend time. I think that if this was like a highly curated, high design, and it may end up being, I'm I'm being super judgy right now, but just thinking about what I've seen from kind of the existing spaces that Planet Hollywood plays in, it's just an expensive ticket to get into a club that you may not want to go work from four days a week. That's my wonder about that long-term value. The other question I have is the business model, which is a membership club where only the members get to be is one thing. The membership club where only members get first preference and get guaranteed access is a different thing. And then you still open as a traditional club. And I think actually the hybrid business model is the one that's the most interesting, in my opinion, when it comes to these clubs. Rosie, any thoughts on tokenization of IRL spaces? Yeah, I think that tokenized memberships are something that are continue to be explored. There's a lot of really interesting use cases for it. My concern with these types of membership-only token-gated clubs, we've seen, for example, like with Empire DAO, you know, as a Web3 co-working space, there's a lot of initial interest. And then I think things started to sort of taper off. Continuing to offer that utility to its members over time is hard to do. So I'm just curious about their offerings beyond being a Soho House equivalent or beyond being a, you know, a WeWork for Web3. What else are they going to be able to offer their holders? How are they going to maintain that value over time is something that 
you know, I'm very curious to see. I think there's awesome opportunity for a membership club to integrate something like a wallet as a service product. So rather than just trying to sell this into new users, actually to provide some incremental value to their existing users and introduce this as a differentiator for their membership, I think that would be pretty awesome. Agreed. I think it's still a, you know, is this a model that people will do or is it a easier way to pre-fund the building of your location and then you end up changing your model? I think it could be 50% either way. I also don't think that that's a wrong way to think. I think there's a little too much NFT promise that makes sometimes NFTs feel like Kickstarter to me. And so that is a little bit of a worry I have on all of these things. Let's raise a bunch of money and then we have to make something happen. But I think depending on the operator, you know, and Planet Hollywood knows how to operate a physical space. Like I know Gary and his partners know how to open up a physical space. So like people can make this happen. I just, I guess I'm being a little skeptical on the realities of what you're going to get. I would agree with you, Sam. I think that there's a lot of really great ways to do it. But if you aren't familiar with how to do it well, it kind of seems like a Kickstarter. All right, Rosie, I want to talk to you about the concept of tokenized playlists. So recently, Spotify announced an integration where they're going to allow you to have a token, which gets you access to a playlist on Spotify. One, do I have that correct? And then two, can you like just explain what this means when it comes to how to tokenize music in this way? Yeah. So Spotify recently, they're testing a new service. It's called Token Enabled Playlists. So it basically allows holders of a particular NFT community to connect their wallets to Spotify and listen to curated music from that community. I think the test is initially for members of the Fluff, Moonbirds, Kingship, and Overlord communities. But I think it's a really interesting way to engage with your community, find commonalities within that community. I think sometimes when you're part of an NFT community, you kind of feel like, who are these people that are also holders and what do we have in common? So, you know, token gated playlists can be a fun way to sort of interact with those people. Audius is doing something similar where they're doing NFT gating for artist access. I think a lot of Web2 companies are trying to figure out what is the natural way for us to integrate some of these Web3 concepts. So NFTs are a really easy way to onboard existing users. So I think it's smart for Spotify to do it in this way. Is this you know, a tool that is going to have major you know, long-term appeal? I don't know. But I do think that it's a smart way for Spotify to sort of get its feet wet in terms of integrating Web3. Yes. And I think one of the challenges with it, though, is it's only Android. So I know, you know, when we're sort of looking at this, we're like, this sounds awesome. And it is awesome. And I think token gated playlists are great. But for an audience who primarily uses iOS, that's very challenging. And we, of course, know why this is happening, because Apple is creating all these barriers for sort of Web3 native integrations, which I think is unfortunately a huge shame. Let's break that down for a second, right? I think that the real challenge here is most music is being played currently on apps that people are utilizing mobily. We already know Apple has a bit of friction in connecting wallets and being able to utilize purchase for that. I'm hoping that Apple at some point allows at least wallet awareness to come through and therefore be able to unlock things. It feels like, you know, there are a lot of things, it could be a token proof or something like this that could probably help solve some of that stuff where it's not about the purchase itself. But Avery, I'm interested because I feel like there was a moment, and maybe that moment was a couple of years where brands were like all in on playlists. And, you know, our friend Andrew over the infatuation releases one every month, you know, and we all get notifications and like they curated like a pretty fire playlist. So it also feels like the idea of, you know, hold our token, get access to just something that only you and the club get to play with 
still feels like a net benefit to the brand. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a net benefit to the brand for sure. Everybody loves a good playlist. Shout out the infatuation playlist. Brands do love music as well. I think curating is an underrated skill. Creating net new music that hits is so hard, but curating a nice mix is amazing. And credits, of course, a bunch of different artists. For a brand though, that's not necessarily ownable. What you have to own is that curation and the feeling and emotion that inspires. It makes you think like, yes, this reminds me of drinking a Waterloo soda. I love this feeling or whatever the brand may be. But I love playlists. I think they make a ton of sense. It's a nice like, light way to give your audience something a little bit special, a little bit personalized. What I think would be a real banger is exclusive tracks. If I was a singer, if I was a band, I'd be all over this. So my super fans can get access to a little bit more than what sort of standard album purchasers can get. That's really interesting. I want to pick up on one thing you said earlier, though, which is, you know, we had Angelique from Aloe on a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. And she said by holding the Aloe token that they released at Fashion Week in New York this year, you got access to their studios and you got access to their Aloe houses. So it feels like just another prong on that exclusive angle of what you get by being a holder could be our curated playlist. And maybe it's, hey, we work with DJX. DJX curated this just for our audience. You only get it by having it. it is an interesting unlock. Now, going to the artist side, you know, our wonderful producer today, Adrian, is a musician. So I'm going to give him a shout out, Doc Blessed. But Adrian, as a musician, right, starting to think about it through the lens of, you know, I've been very skeptical on, hey, I'm a Web3 musician. I release a song, collect my song. Like, I just don't think we're in that world anymore where people need to collect music. They are used to streaming music and having access to all of it. The idea, though, that you can be in the Adrian fan club and say, by holding this, you always get all my tracks early. Maybe you get the unreleased stuff. Maybe you get the demos. Maybe you get the stuff that I'm kind of like working out. Maybe you're part of that process. I want to find a vocalist. Like, there's a lot of stuff that I feel like tokenizing the access to the musician. This makes a lot more sense to me than the idea of buy my song. Any thoughts on agreement or do you hate that idea? Well, I think that's more of what Audius is doing is that they're creating exclusive content for specific artists and their specific NFT holders. Whereas Spotify, it's more of a, you know, collective community exercise. So I kind of agree with you. I think more broadly, the connection between Web3 and music is still maybe a little bit unclear. It's a little awkward. I think music royalties are a great way to, you know, create value for holders. I still think that the, you know, music and Web3 connections can be done better in the future. I can't wait to see what Spotify does, what Audius does, what a lot of these other content platforms do, because the same thing that we're talking about with Spotify could be done with Netflix, could be done with Amazon Prime. There's been some murmurings around that. It could be done with Peacock or many others. Yep, that's a really, really good point. All right, final conversation. So first off, Rosie, you are the editor of The Airdrop. I would love for you to tell our audience what The Airdrop is, and then we'll tell them how to get it. Yeah, The Airdrop is our weekly Web3 newsletter. We round up the biggest stories of the week in Web3, and we distill it into bite-sized chunks. You can subscribe to The Airdrop via Coindesk.com, and it's a great way to sort of get your alpha information before everyone else. Amazing. The airdrop's a great read. Coindesk.com slash the airdrop for anyone who wants to get on that. Avery, you guys released, I don't know if you call it a white paper, some thought leadership. You guys came out with this concept that we talked about a couple weeks ago, but I really love of Web3 being a little more expansive than the way most people think about it. 
in terms of it really sort of being the next stage of the connected consumer. So I would love one for you to talk a little bit about what you think goes into Web3. I think we're going to challenge you a little bit on some of it, but it's a really, I think, well thought out structure that you've done. And then secondly, we will drop the link to it so you guys can all read it in the show notes. But first, Avery, tell us about the connected consumer. Yeah. So over the last 18 months, a question that we've gotten from so many of our partners, you know, both clients and people we speak to in the industry and people who are curious about this and people who are looking to poke holes in this industry, like what is Web3 anyway? You say the next era of the internet, but what does that mean? And to us at Vayner, Web3 is that next era of connected consumer behavior. And it's powered by the fact that we're living in a digital first reality. Whether you are Gen Alpha or a boomer, you're spending multiple hours online per day. And increasingly, your digital presence matters just as much or potentially more than your physical presence and life sort of in the real world. And that's just a reality of 2023. And time spent on screens and on digital devices continues to go in one direction. And that's up, up, up. And what we're seeing with what consumers want out of the next era of the internet is they want an internet that is co-created. They want an internet that is personalized and ownable and immersive. We see a lot of sort of friction with the existing duopoly and consumers are hungry for this next sort of phase of the internet. And we've seen this manifest in a couple of different technologies, which sort of marry up with those consumer needs. First, we see consumers gravitating to blockchain-based technology. We also see enterprises gravitating to that. A decentralized ledger where there's transparency is something that within certain communities really matters. We see this in the world of NFTs. We see this in the world of crypto. We also see these immersive experiences becoming more and more important. Even on this you know, podcast, we were just talking about gaming. Gaming matters. People have fun gaming. They have you know, friends gaming. That's entertainment. And they want something that feels more immersive and full on. That's why we see things like skins matter or Robux matter. And then we also see this sort of advanced computing helping to tailor towards people's expectations around a personalized internet. It's the reason we see chat GPT resonating or Lenza, where you can you know, make your awesome portraits. People want an internet that's immersive and personalized and ownable. And that's matching up into these three buckets of sort of blockchain-based technology, advanced computing technology, and sort of this immersive experience technology, which some people call metaverse. But to us, you know, it's a little bit more broad. And all of those things are kind of percolating and they're touching each other at certain points, right? Like I don't see these as mutually exclusive. I see them as sort of a lava lamp, which in the visual of in the white paper, you kind of see them touching. But I think all of these are part of the next era of the internet. So Vayner, that's how we're defining it, which is a little bit more broad. It's intentionally a little bit more broad. The way we'd you know previously been defining it was very heavily focused on blockchain. And while I believe that's a tremendous part of the future of the internet, we also want to be realistic that the blockchain doesn't solve all problems. So I love the idea that Web3 is a lava lamp. So how do you react when, and I'm thinking about, you know, the true kind of blockchain maxis, right? When they come back to you and they say, okay, but chat GPT, we don't know what's in that sauce of what's making the choices, how many biases are in there, how many people on the back end, especially with Microsoft are kind of in getting in like, and tweaking the levers with Roblox. Like both of those are very centralized. Whereas blockchain is very decentralized and the promise initially of Web3 is ownable. But how ownable can anything be if, you know, one company, two companies, five companies are still making the decisions on the back end that help determine what those outputs look like? I think my answer would be ownable to who? Because if you speak to those people who own those assets, they do think that they own them because they paid for them with their money. So 
It's a little bit of like who you ask, right? Is it, I completely understand the blockchain purists, but at the end of the day, a lot of this is running on AWS anyway, right? When you think about like the reality of how decentralized servers work, you know, and we've seen this with plenty of like NFT creators who launched something and they, you know, lost access to X, Y, and Z part of it, or, you know, they had an issue with IPFS or the metadata didn't update. And so I think it's one ownable to who, and secondarily, there's still so much centralized infrastructure that underpins even a lot of the what would feel very Web3 native. And we've obviously seen pushback on certain companies like an OpenSea, right? Who's potentially controlling different parts of the market. And we're very aware of that. But we wanted to craft this definition to really help enterprises understand this. Because you know, I tell my team this all the time. Our job at Vayner is not to evangelize Web3 principles. It is to help our clients solve business problems by understanding this next era of the internet rather than to necessarily espouse like purist blockchain principles, even if I believe in a lot of those myself. So we're balancing that fine line, right, of purist with practicality. Rosie, as someone who, you know, your job day in, day out is to cover this industry, how do you feel about the idea? And do you include the chat GPTs and the Robloxes in your purview of what you think what either Web3 is or has a promise to become? I think Web3 is so amorphous at this point. We're getting there slowly, but I still think it's not totally clear what Web3 will look like, how we will interact with each other, in what spaces. I think it's a little bit crowded. So I think there's room for experimentation across platforms, whether they're more traditional Web2 platforms, whether they're AI-driven platforms. I think they'll all find a place in Web3 eventually. So I'm all for it. I love ChatGPT. Shout out to ChatGPT for helping me write my emails better. So <laughs> I'm a big fan. I love all of that. My one struggle that I keep going towards is, you know, that I can go into ChatGPT and I can say, you know, write me six paragraphs in the style of Chuck Klosterman about this topic. Or I can go into Dolly and I can say, make me a picture in the style of Matisse in this way. And I think the minute we do that, while we find ownership in it, that there is so much tie to other people's work. Like I want decentralization to always feel that I could find out on chain that like Chuck Klosterman got, you know, 0.04 cents because his style was utilized in what, you know, the query came back with. And same on the like the mid journey and Dolly side, which I think is frankly a great use of blockchain if someone is working on that. But, you know, there's not enough provenance, which is part of, I think, why people love the blockchain and crypto so much because you can always trace it down to the layer zero if you want. With that, guys, we're going to wrap up. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us. We loved having you. Hopefully you'll come back again. Thank you so much for having me. No, it was fantastic. And, you know, every week we talk about the stuff on Gen C. We'll have an amazing guest with us next week. Thank you so much for joining us, Rosie. Great to hear your insights and great to chat with you. And thank you, Gen C community, for tuning in to the pod today. Keep on creating, connecting, collaborating. And uh, hit us up with any questions, comments, or thoughts. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.